Good evening. Um, I'm Dr. Ali Abrahimi, and it's my absolute pleasure to welcome you to the LSE this evening and to welcome our panelists for this discussion on the evolution of the Syrian opposition in an open, critical academic environment. The conflict in Syria was ignited when, in the spring of 2011, the Syrian regime meted out an iron-fisted response to a peaceful civil protest movement, eliciting international horror, condemnation, and widespread sympathy for the protesters, even as they began to take up arms and became rebels. However, more than 18 months later, the dominant narrative of the Syrian opposition, broadly speaking, which is that what is happening is a war against civilians, a war by the Assad regime against Syrian civilians, has been increasingly subject to challenge. Many international news outlets, as I'm sure you've noticed, now routinely refer to the conflict in Syria as a civil war. Reports by human rights groups, which consistently document grave abuses by the Assad regime, have also condemned the regime's opponents for unlawful killings and other violations. So what is really going on in Syria today, from the opposition and exile's perspective? Has the militarization of the Syrian opposition struggle posed more challenges than opportunities? And what is the way forward? To answer these questions and many others, I'm sure, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome our three distinguished guests. Fasma Kudmani is a former member of the Syrian National Council's Executive Committee. She is currently Executive Director of the Arab Reform Initiative in Paris. Yara Nasir is a civil society activist. She's currently a member of the Syrian National Council and works as a journalist in Lebanon. Nicholas No is a leading expert on Lebanon and Hezbollah and editor-in-chief of the news translation service MideastWire.com. So uh, Basma will speak first, followed by Yara, who is joining us by Skype owing to problems with securing her visa, and then Nicholas, who will give us a sense of the re regional repercussions of what's going on. We'll then hopefully have 30 to 40 minutes for Q&A. And I should point out that this event is being recorded, and it's hoped that a podcast will be made available afterwards on the website. Please do put your mobile phones on silent, but feel free to tweet using the hashtag LSCSyria. So can I invite uh, Basma Kudmani to start us off? Thank you very much, Alia. Uh, it is a pleasure to be here. I have not spoken at LSE, have not come to participate in debates, but I know you've had many debates uh, in, at LSE on Syria, and uh, it is a, an opportunity at this point in time to uh, stop and look at where uh, I believe we are and whether we uh, are at a turning point. And what could have been done six months ago uh, and wasn't uh, is different today. What can be done today is a different choice between different options. But certainly there is much to do and much more than what is being done. And I mean by that, this is a uh, revolt, an uprising of a people, a society against a regime. Uh, it has turned within six months into a regional, 
confrontation uh, that has brought in determined backers of the regime, supporters, one key supporter in terms of financial and military and direct support, and this is Iran, and one determined and unconditional supporter at the diplomatic level, and this is Russia in addition to other forms of support, but its key value is, of course, in its diplomatic protection of the regime. To those who ask whether there is a substitute to the Assad regime today, uh, a correct answer is to say this is an outrageous question. How can we still ask a question such as this one when such a regime kills every day, destroys, and the killings and the destruction are uh, with long-term consequences, not yet irreversible consequences, but long-term, and the damage is considerable, in addition to the uh, manipulation of issues of a regional dimension that the regime does and therefore uh, brings the danger outside the borders of the country and uh, certainly poses a threat to uh, regional security and uh, an important international dimension to it, which I, th I think uh, all of us can obviously see. Now, if this is an outrageous question, and it is an outrageous question, the regime needs to go. This is a, uh, a position that I think we can confidently say is 90% of Syrians believe this regime cannot continue to rule. And when I say that, I am saying 90% believe it cannot continue to rule. Some of those may believe, may, would have, would, may have liked the regime to continue. Some may uh, be uh, very uh, concerned about what uh, the uprising has brought in terms of groups on the ground and uh, a particular discourse and trends. Yet, uh, I think 90% know that the regime ca simply cannot rule anymore over uh, rivers of blood and, and uh, the, with the number of killed and the destruction that it has caused. But a legitimate question perhaps is, if it goes, uh, what, is, what is the alternative? Uh, so my, the way I pose the issue is to say it needs to go definitely. Is there a, will there be a power vacuum? Will there be chaos? Will there be a democratic political system? This is really, uh, I think, how we should today consider the issues and think of what can be done to maintain what was the starting point of this uprising a population that was uh, rising against dictatorship, asking for freedom and dignity, and all sectors of society were involved. 
if if anything, if if we are to say some categories more than others, it wasn't amongst sectarian communities so much as among social classes. Maybe more the rural classes, more younger people, uh, more um, the disadvantaged, those who, uh, in addition to the lack of freedom and dignity, uh, were also deprived of any prospect uh, for their future. And uh, therefore, I think that nature of the revolt was never really uh, in question. What is, what became a complicating uh, factor is obviously the regional dimension and the international dimension. And as much as uh, it is important to understand what happens at the regional and international level and the geopolitics of the situation, uh, I personally always feel uh, very uncomfortable when Syria is discussed in terms of regional, uh, as if this was a uh, regional issue, as if it was a strategic uh, confrontation, and as if there was not a people there that has risen against the regime. Uh, when Syria is compared to Afghanistan, compared to Iraq, or compared to uh, even Lebanon, the one big difference is that people tend to forget to mention a popular uprising against a regime. Now, the question is a valid one. What is, this, what is the alternative, given, given uh, what I have just said? Can we meet those aspirations of the people after all? Can they expect and hope for a better future with the democratic values that they claimed in the beginning. There is an unfortunate uh, development that was imposed by the response of the regime, and that is the harsh repression and the, the deliberate uh, strategy to drag the peaceful revolt towards militarization because this is where the regime had it, has the upper hand, did happen. It happened spontaneously. It did not happen as a result of anybody's decision and certainly not the opposition's decision. Now, some groups within the opposition um, were convinced earlier than others that the military confrontation was inevitable. Among those groups, I would say the Muslim Brothers, particularly because they had their own experience of uh, confrontation, of a brutal com confrontation back in the 80s uh, in the city of Hama. And for those, and these are the same leaders of the Muslim Brothers movement, uh, the same men who lived through the, uh, the confrontation of the 80s in Hama, who early on uh, believed there was no alternative to confronting the regime militarily. 
But for other groups, I think we can fairly say that, uh, in, in fairness, say that uh, they were hoping that this would not happen, and perhaps they hoped so much for it not to happen that they were a bit late in understanding the need to organize and build a coherent strategy around the militarization that became a fact on the ground. The militarization definitely draws, uh, drew financial support. And the moment it, militarization happened, the revolt became dependent on financial support and obviously military support. So by militarizing the situation, we reach immediately a regional dimension, and obviously perhaps, or to a lesser extent, an international dimension, but a regional dimension. And the militarization attracted money from neighboring countries. This is a Muslim region. It attracted money from channels that are Islamic. And money came and arms came from both uh, Islamic countries as governments as well as networks, informal networks. <coughs> Private money is maybe bigger and more sustained and more reliable uh, for the fighters on the ground than government money. This is what uh, brought the uprising to become an Islamic-funded revolution, but definitely not an Islamic revolution. And I can say in all confidence, because this is an everyday experience we have as people who worked and continue to work with people on the ground, is we get calls of uh, members of the Free Syrian Army who say, can you find us other sources of support? We do not want to give our loyalty to the Muslim Brothers, to the Salafi groups. Uh, this is the price we are asked to pay in order to get the support. But that's not where we want to go. And they beg for other forms, other sources of support. That message uh, is very powerful today and is put out by um, the leadership of the opposition movements, all opposition movements uh, are saying it is time some other sources are made available. If we continue to see the flow of support from Islamic sources, then uh, it is to be expected that we will find on the ground an artificially um, exaggerated uh, Islamic movement. But the good news is whenever you tell uh, a Syrian there is uh, a way of not having to use this kind of support, uh, the answer is they want to immediately turn away from that. 
And therefore, what uh, we have in fact witnessed is that the weakness of the coordination between the political opposition and the groups on the ground has led to a fragmentation of these groups uh, and uh, specific partisan loyalties being uh, secured by different groups. In, instead of a uh, national authority that could that would have been better able to coordinate and build a coherent relationship with those armed groups on the ground. And the dilemma of should the opposition support militarized uh, action, military action or not, uh, became almost a, an irrelevant question because the most peaceful young people on the streets who had uh, agreed to, who had accepted to take the risk and go down and demonstrate peacefully and die, uh, the powerful, the, the power of this um, peaceful uh, strategy uh, was simply not uh, working anymore. And uh, the choice was you either go home or you pick up arms. That tells you what the Free Syrian Army is all about. The Free Syrian Army is a population that took up arms. It is not uh, a structured army, never was a structured army. These were the two categories, the young people, mostly young people who picked up arms, civilians, and the defecting uh, professional military uh, and among those uh, are as you know uh, many are inside and some are outside in neighboring countries Turkey as well as, as uh, Jordan the message I think from and the, from this last experience from the experience of this last year since we have had a military uprising on the ground is uh, that a political front, a political cohesion, coherent and cohesive uh, political authority is badly needed and urgently needed. The efforts are underway. It is taking longer than uh, one would have liked. But eventually, I think, we will see the emergence of a political authority and hopefully a provisional government. This is currently what is in preparation. Uh, and for that to happen and to build a credible authority, this authority needs to develop strong connections with the groups on the ground. And this is where the political opposition will not succeed on its own. There is no way for a political opposition, however coherent, to secure the, um, the organization and the structuring and the loyalty or the, um, let's say, the, 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 a coherent command or a, a unified command for the groups on the ground if it does not have the means 
to channel support to these groups. Uh, the Free Syrian Army tell us every day, it doesn't matter if uh, one of us is a general and another is a colonel and uh, another is a simple soldier. What matters is who has money and who can bring support to the others. And that's what determines, in fact, the loyalties. We have to be here, I think, very realistic. If we are to build a national free Syrian army with the diversity that reflects the nature of this uprising from the start, then we need to have <coughs> aid channeled through a national authority. And this authority needs that promise for it to be able to build a credible political authority that can claim to have control on the ground. This is where the international community has a vital role to play, and a vital role to play now, not wait and see until that occurs, <coughs> until a political authority comes about. It will come about, but it won't be able to control the situation on the ground unless this kind of support is coordinated among all countries that are providing aid. It is humanitarian aid, of course, first and foremost, and it is support to the Free Syrian Army. This is, I think, where the responsibility of the international, uh, of the community of countries that are called the Friends of Syria uh, lies, whether it is the regional players or uh, outside countries in the West and uh, elsewhere. The reality is that over the last year and a half, we have seen a, uh, an engagement of the international uh, or the, the influential countries that is way below what is required. And until now, you know, today there's a meeting in Paris with a number of countries coming together to discuss how we support local councils on the ground and how um, the civil popula civilian population can be helped. Humanitarian aid is way below what is required and political management of the situation is way below what is required. We, as I mentioned in the beginning of, what I, of my uh, remarks, there are determined players that are supporting the regime. There is lack of determination on the side of those who are supporting uh, the aspirations of the Syrian population. We have had, an, an, we've had a management of the situation over the last year and a half that is not a responsible management. Due to whatever we hear about Russia and China blocking uh, the, any decision at the UN Security Council. But I can certainly say in confidence as well that if Russia and China were shown determination that there is a real willingness to commit forcefully to support the Syrian, the Syrian people's aspirations, my, my guess is uh, they will consider, recons there is a good chance 
these countries will reconsider their positions. And we hear from uh, Russian diplomats and officials very often, actually, uh, we are a wonderful pretext for the West uh, because it allows the West to say that there's nothing it can do because we are blocking uh, any decision at the Security Council. While this is true, diplomats work in good faith when they prepare the text of a resolution, but uh, when you look on the ground uh, and you look at the real management of the situation, the determination is not there, the message is not clear. And I'm not surprised to see that uh, whether Mr. Lavrov or Mr. Uh, Putin or their representative at the UN uh, laugh or respond in a very cynical way to uh, the uh, to Western countries' appeal to uh, behave differently uh, towards the Syrian crisis. There is no sense of, uh, I, I, I hate to say that there is any uh, conspiracy there. Uh, I think the Syrian opposition itself has its own homework to do. There is a lot we need to do uh, as the Syrian opposition. And far from me, uh, the idea of uh, blaming uh, the outside world for everything that is uh, happening uh, inside Syria within the opposition. But on the other hand, I think uh, this is not just a confrontation with one regime. It is a much bigger, uh, much bigger fight that the Syrian people on their own uh, cannot uh, conduct. So I will leave it at that. Mm -hmm. Thank, Thank you. you very much, Basma. Yes. Um, do you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, we can. Um, you've got 15 or 20 minutes to give us your thoughts. Okay. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. Um, thank you, Mrs. Basma. I think Mrs. Basma already covered um, many important uh, and uh, topics, and that's why I'm going to be short and brief because she already um, described this, described the situation. Um, very good. Actually, what I want to say is um, to try a bit to describe how the political opposition is uh, working inside Syria, what are the main blocks inside Syria, and also what is the relationship with the um, armed, uh, uh, the FSA, the armed resistance inside. Um, at the beginning, uh, let me um, say that we have inside Syria many group uh, many groups which which consist of first the syrian national coordinating body then building the syrian state movement and the syrian democratic platform as well as smaller civil society and political groups um, this is the civil let's say the civil or political opposition inside syria that working and functioning inside syria um, later on, of course, as we all know, the civil resistance turned into an armed one because of the um, crackdown and the oppression of the Syrian regime. 
new components were added to the scene. The FSA, of course, the armed group, who uh, at the beginning um, tried to defend uh, civilians to, to protect their lives, and with the time became more organized and um, uh, many groups inside Syria. And of course, uh, lately we have the jihadi armed groups in the north of Syria. Um, let's say that the first four blocks I mentioned, the Syrian National Coordinating Body, the building the Syrian State Movement, uh, Syrian Democratic Platform, and also the small civil society and political groups are representing those who want to uh, overthrow the regime, but peacefully, and doesn't support the militarization, nor the mil international military intervention. Uh, and, and maybe we can say that these groups also may be representing groups, the silent majority, who wanted to achieve the change, but peacefully and quietly, which the regime um, didn't give us a chance to do, the Syrian the Al-Assad regime didn't give us a chance to do. And also the FSA and the Salafis and Jihadist groups who stands for the armed resistance. Um, unfortunately, unfortunately, that the political opposition didn't succeed for many reasons to reach a political so solution so far. Of course, um, I believe that we are waiting for the outcome of Mr. Ibrahimi's mission, uh, but failure in any political solution will lead to escalating the armed resistance Noting that the jihadi and the FSA have the upper hand now in Syria because of the power of weapon. And so far there is no much coordinating, unfortunately, between the political leaders and the armed ones, the armed groups, the armed leaders. Um, I believe that to guarantee a secure future for Syria uh, and also for the region, more efforts should be, uh, should be done to bridge the gap between political leadership and the leadership of the FSA. This is, um, this is not the case, just to be flat, frank and clear, just to be frank with ourselves. It is not the case now in Syria, unfortunately. Of course, there is a lot of efforts trying to um, bridge this gap between the political and the FSA, but I won't call it a success so far. The, ma the main problem is that the FSA is not unified, not, um, uh, not, not connected, not, not, uh, not working under unified leadership. It's not a military institute yet. And the effort should be geared toward unifying all groups along with their financial resources. I think Mrs. Qudmani brought that up. This is a very important matter to unify the financial resources, enabling us to unify the FSA itself under one, one, under one leadership. Uh, tying it with a unified and strong politi political leadership as well. Otherwise, the situation in Syria um, is deteriorating and it's uh, feared that the conflict will spread and will be more sectarian with the time. Um, I'm saying this and I'm so sad to say it, but I think these are um, realistic fears now in Syria that um, 
more sectarian conflict are, are growing with the time and it's threatening not only Syria but the whole region, especially because of the jihadi threat in the north of Syria. I won't um, overrated, I won't, I won't consider it, I think it's overrated maybe, these fears are overrated so far, I mean the jihadi groups in the north, but um, because of the because of the of the crisis is is taking longer and longer i think their their threat is 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 going uh, is growing bigger as well um i have to say that civil society small groups inside syria are struggling to fight the sectarian and the um salafist and radical situation growing bigger with the time but yet they are not well funded nor supported enough to achieve or to be able to fight the this radical movement growing inside Syria. Uh, what we should do, I think the international community at first must support Mr. El Ibrahimi mission in order to reach a ceasefire at first. Seizing, uh, reaching a ceasefire at the first stage might be uh, a chance to start looking for a political solution inside Syria. Uh, of course, and to support as well the civil society movements inside, because we need the civil society movements inside, the civil society groups to be more uh, structured, more uh, powerful, uh, more uh, maybe funded and supported in order to fight the sectarian, sectarianism growing bigger with the time. Um, this is what I have to say for, for the moment, I think, because um, I think it's, it's the picture now is clear that the, the, the political leadership is, is, is on the ground. Let's, let's say that, that the situation on the ground is fully controlled by the armed FSA, the Free Syrian Army. And unfortunately, the, the, the political, uh, political leadership, political opposition is still um, not effective in, in, uh, in solving this. So I think the coming efforts must be toward this, must be toward um, unifying the financial resources, let's say it once again, because as Mrs. Qudmani mentioned, there's a lot of um, radical and Salafist and... and uh, uh, other other parties are funding some groups inside Syria for uh, for uh, just to strengthen the the Salafi uh, movement and um, I think this is a threat for the future. So we need to unify the, the the source of money, the financial resources, to be under one uh, uh, under, uh, one lead, under one leadership to be controlled by one political entity and also to join the, the, the armed forces and the political forces together and, 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 and to be able to reach a political solution with the time. But for the moment, I feel that we are really stuck. We are, I'm not optimistic for this moment. Um, we came into... Uh, we came into the bottleneck now. Um, and uh, I think maybe the Al-Ibrahimi uh, mission might be a, 
a chance to a chance to start to to uh, to fix things. This is what I have to, what, I, what I have to say for the moment. And of course, I'm willing to answer any questions. Thanks a lot. Hi. Um, thanks, uh, Alia and LSE and Basma and Yara as well. Um, just a quick uh, clarification. I think, uh, in general, the discussion about Syria from journalists and analysts like myself need to come with a lot more qualifications than they have for the last 20 months. Um, I'm not an activist. I'm not Syrian. I'm American. Um, and I'm an American political analyst, uh, independent, uh, with my own company in Beirut, where I've been for nine years. I worked previously for Hillary Clinton and had the pleasure of understanding the, let's say, moral uh, emptiness of the Clinton machine, <laughs> among other problems, including incompetency. Um, but I want to make something very clear, which is really important, I think, beyond that, which is that I'll be speaking for this next little period, especially about my proposals, but also about my analysis from the perspective of U.S. interests, okay? So... I'm not speaking necessarily about what may be best for Syrians, what may be best for Palestinians, what may be best for Israelis, Lebanese, or others. I'm speaking strictly from the perspective of American interests, um, and specifically the moral and strategic interests of the United States, of my country. Um, so please keep that in mind. That's not to say that uh, we can get into a discussion about what m may be better for Syrians vis-a-vis uh, -vis some of the things that I have to say, but I can't uh, speak from that perspective. Um, two other qualifications that are very important, especially when we're discussing such a contentious issue where many of our friends have uh, died or had their homes destroyed. Um, two, two quick things. One thing is just on Hezbollah, which is my main subject area, is that... Um, I, my personal position is that Hezbollah should be disarmed. The main issue, and it will be the same one when we talk about the regime of Bashar Assad, the main issue for me is how to approach that issue, how to peacefully remove the desire and ability of an actor like Hezbollah to use violence, either against other Lebanese or against people in the region. In general, I've written about this subject in particular over the years, and I think that there have existed at numerous points in the last 10 years, in the last six years, peaceful ways, better peaceful ways to go about dealing with the issue of Hezbollah, as just one example. The second sort of qualification is that um, I think it's, it's, there's no way to dispute that Bashar Assad and the regime that he runs is, is evil, um, is probably one of the more evil and brutal regimes uh, among many others, though, in the Middle East and beyond. Um, so uh, no one should be confused um, in what I'm going to lay out as my analysis and a possible way forward uh, for Syria uh, in thinking that. And precisely because of that, I agree uh, with probably 90% of what a lot of Syrian activists, friends in Lebanon, in Syria, and elsewhere, uh, believe. And indeed, I think specifically what, what Basma just laid out you know, I would say that I agree with, with almost everything in the analysis, but it's in the way forward and the missed opportunities from before that I strongly disagree. So 
Let me just go into to that by, by opening with, the, I think, the key question on Syria, uh, especially, again, from a U.S. strategic and moral point of view, which is, the question for me is, how is it best to bring down a brutal dictatorship like this? With the critical caveat that we have to recognize the military balance of power is significantly different than in other theaters, such as Libya, as but one example, and even Iraq. Okay? I was in a debate yesterday at, at the American University of Paris with, with a friend of ours, a uh, Lebanese political analyst. Um, uh, we got into a, a real discussion over the capabilities of the Syrian regime and also about the capabilities of Hezbollah. So one of the things that I'm going to argue is that neither the Syrian regime nor Hezbollah at a strategic level, we know that Syria can inflict, the regime can inflict massive brutality, but at a strategic level, these are not paper tigers. These are significant military actors that have the ability, especially the regime of Bashar al-Assad, especially at the beginning and even till now, to bring great destruction to the Middle East and beyond. It is indisputable, it is indisputable, although Ziad disputed it yesterday and we got into a little fight about it. It's indisputable in my view. Syria has one of the largest, most effective chemical weapons and WMD programs in the world. Okay? When you consider that, and when you consider the multiple unintended consequences, the multiple contingencies related to this kind of destructive firepower, for me as an analyst, strategically and morally, that has to shift the entire debate about what to do, both at the beginning of when the regime started its brutality, which of course began on day one, until now, when it's only accelerated further. Precisely for many of these reasons, I'm as pessimistic, I'd say more pessimistic, than Yara. Um, uh, Basma gave a, a very interesting speech at the United Nations the other day, where she laid out several points of a way forward, and, um, and I read those uh, in summary. And one of the things that she said was uh, there was a need for new creative thinking and instant action to avoid a drift scenario. Now, there are two problems in my, my view with that. Um, one is that things are far worse than approaching a drift scenario, uh, beyond even the 30,000 dead Syrians right now. I would argue, and I'm sure that there are people in the audience that will dispute this, Ziad disputed this, perhaps others, Yara, Basma, and others will dispute this, but I think that it's, it's very, um, it's credible to say that the Levant and this part of the Middle East is perched at possibly the most dangerous military moment since the 1973 war with Israel, the Arab-Israeli conflict in 1973, the Arab-Israeli war in 1973, um, and quite possibly greater than that. Um, one irony of the Hezbollah drone flight, which may or may not have reached the Dimona nuclear facility in Israel, is it, it harkens back to the 1973 scenario where, you know, we can also dispute some of the history here, but where the Israeli nuclear deterrent was, to some degree, activated or readied, okay? Right now, there are U.S. ground troops in Jordan and elsewhere, and, of course, they are also permanently stationed at the, one of the largest nuclear facilities in southern Turkey, in Incirlik uh, Air Base, already. But the reason why, I would argue, the primary likely reason why there are U.S. ground troops in Jordan right now is because the U.S. military, the U.S. government, the Israelis, and a number of other actors are extraordinarily concerned about the increasing possibility of a major regional confrontation, one that could involve 
chemical weapons, or WMDs. Now, though that that leads to a second problem in in sort of in what I just quoted, um, which is something that I, I don't think you hit on as as precisely as you did at the United Nations the other day. And I don't want to uh, misconstrue words, so perhaps in the discussion we can talk about this, but. I think one of the main uh, ideas that we're hearing from Syrian activists and from SNC folks and former SNC folks and others is that the core idea, the great hope, is to flood more and sophisticated weapons. Now, channel them better for sure, that would be great. You know, It would be wonderful. But the core idea is that somehow, if we just give the, the rebels or the right rebels 100 Stinger missiles or 1,000 anti-tank weapons, that this brittle paper tiger regime will just collapse with a, at least a minimal further amount of bloodshed and casualties, that will somehow reach a kind of mythical tipping point. Um, I think that that's highly unlikely. And I would argue that the introduction or increasing the velocity of violence the velocity and quality of violence in Syria, indeed at the beginning till now, is exactly the wrong approach. At the end of the day, I think it's fundamentally irrational because we hit up against a great contradiction, which is if, as most of us, I'm sure, believe that this regime is evil to the core and that it will not spare anyone and that it will do anything, if you pair that up with its military capabilities and the ease by which we can stumble in or decidedly go into a major regional confrontation. All of those things together mean that increasing the velocity of, and quality of violence will only bring us more towards greater violence and the possibility of a whole wide range of terrible contingencies. Now that's the kind of... That's a bit of a, obviously, uh, you know, and, and rightfully so, I, I, I'm sure I'll be criticized for being a bit too apocalyptic and it would be very interesting, as I did with Ziad and, and others in the last few days, get into the nitty-gritty of what we think is really the capabilities, because I think that that fundamentally shifts the debate. Let me step back for a second, because the, the sort of second great question is, is to answer the first one, which is, which is you know, what are the, what's the alternative then that, for example, I'm proposing, or that at the very least I think should be discussed, okay? I would argue that since the beginning of the Syrian revolt, there has been a terrible lack of discussion. There has not been a robust discussion about alternatives. There has basically been a false choice between two different roads. There is the, what I would call the hard intervention road and the soft intervention road. Within the hard intervention road, there are some that want to see uh, no-fly zones, which would likely entail, especially when the Syrian military was stronger, would likely suck people into a confrontation or war. There were people that did not want to see foreign military intervention, but wanted to see the arming of the Syrian rebels. <clears throat> and then there were others that wanted outright U.S. or other or Arab boots on the ground in order to intervene. The logic being that in order to prevent future violence, we have to bring massive violence now to, to collapse the regime. And that the longer the regime goes on, the more violence, <clears throat> the more radicalization, precisely what we're seeing now, will happen. And in a way, the hard interventionists were correct 
all along. And they were correct in criticizing the flip side of that same coin, which was the Obama approach, the soft intervention approach, and arguably the European approach, which was, let's bring about a controlled collapse of the regime through increasing soft pressure all around it. Let's try and somehow cajole Russia, which proved impossible. Let's cajole other actors to bring about some kind of a controlled collapse. The irony is, is that that Obama approach, which basically did nothing, okay, and led us to this increasing violence and 30,000 dead people that we now have, it's actually ending up in the same endpoint. It's ending up in the same tunnel, which is precisely where we are right now in these coming weeks and months, which is one where the possibility of tremendous violence has become ever more likely. The possibility, indeed, of intervention has become ever more likely on the part of the U.S. and others. Just today, the Israeli Prime Minister, of course, as many people saw, made a kind of red-line threat which can be broadly interpreted by the Israelis as they are wont to do, and especially during election seasons, which is to say if they see any movement of the chemical weapons, they will strike. Okay? So with American boots on the ground in Jordan and elsewhere, the situation is, is reached not a stalemate, and it's not reached, um, it's not reached a drift scenario. It's reached an extraordinarily irrational point where there are virtually no other good options. Now that said, I'll just sort of close with saying what <clears throat> may have been an alternative better approach in the past and an alternative better approach, I think, now. And again, speaking from the perspective of, of U.S. interests. I think a missed opportunity occurred early on in the Syrian uprising. for especially the sort of peace groups, the conflict mitigation groups like International Crisis Group, U.S. Institute for Peace, and others, to propose a third way out of the sort of two, either the soft intervention, going soft for a while and letting things controlled or collapse in a controlled manner, or the hard intervention way. That way would have looked like something like a political agreement with the Assad regime, drawing in, in the sort of macro level, drawing in the regime closer to the Western fold, and in the end, Mubarakizing it. Okay? Indeed, we would have been, I would argue, and this is very contentious, I think we would have been in a place in, two, in March 2011, if there had been a peace deal between Syria and Israel and the U.S. in 2000 with Hafez Assad, a dying Hafez Assad, I think if that had been done, and we can have an argument about why that wasn't done, I blame the Americans, maybe that's predictable, but if there had been that deal, we would have brought the Syrian regime into that Western U.S. fold, okay? We would have steadily been able, like the Egyptian regime as well, to over time reduce its desire and ability to exercise the kind of violence that we see now. I think that if that deal had been done in 2000, indeed there are now reports that there were negotiations in 2009 and 2010 with Netanyahu, that this would have been a fundamentally different regime in the way it could act with such violence. It would not have been necessarily with as little violence as Egypt and certainly not as little violence as Tunisia, 
but it certainly would have not reached this point, where at the end of the day, the Syrian military and the Assad regime controls weapons which can kill so many people. Okay? So, it, just in brief, what it would have looked like would have been bringing in <coughs> the Assad regime closer to the Western fold, bring them into a political negotiated solution, and yes, that would have meant delaying democracy for Syrians. And for some Syrians, quite rightfully, that is absolutely unacceptable. But I would argue that you have to stack that unacceptableness up against what's happened now and what is becoming more likely to happen to the lives of Syrians and beyond. Okay? Where we're at now, that sort of a proposal uh, is very difficult to talk about. And indeed, of course, today the Syrian National Council and others have reiterated that they refuse to include any regime elements in a negotiation process. I think just to close that, first of all, if there is not to be a climactic confrontation in these coming weeks and months, after the U.S. elections, I think one of the things, and we should be talking about this now to understand it, I think that it's very likely that we will enter <clears throat> into serious discussions about a political solution that does not involve as a precondition Bashar Assad going. Now, whether Obama, Obama or Romney, actually, I don't even know if that really matters on this subject. But I think that's a likely scenario if this continues to grind out and does not reach an inflection point, which is very easy for any of these actors to hit, where there is a climactic confrontation sparked off. Given that, I think we should at least discuss here tonight, and I think policymakers should discuss it, and we should discuss the moral righteousness or wrongness of me saying this, of other people saying this, of great powers going ahead with this in the future. But what could this look like? Uh, Ibrahimi has uh, proposed a ceasefire. Is it possible for the United States, politically right now, of course not, but perhaps later on it would be policy-wise best from U.S. strategic and moral interests to in the future work with Russia and Iran to stabilize the situation, to stabilize perhaps the temporary borders of the current de facto situation on the ground, introducing UN, Arab, and other observers, and creating a political process that brings us back from the brink of where we're at now. Now, there probably are multiple places in there that I think probably a lot of people will argue with, and I just say that um, I am very interested to hear what folks have to say in that regard. And uh, that's it. Thank you for your time. Um, thank you, Nick, for giving us lots of things to argue with you about. Um, so we'll go to Q&A now. We've got roving microphones. P uh, please speak clearly into the microphones because we're recording this. So just tell us who you are and um, ask a, a brief question. Um, I'm going to start with this side of the room because we've had our backs to you. Any questions here? Voila. Hello, and uh, thank you for coming here to speak to us to, uh, tonight. And I'm actually very curious about um, mention of the UN and um, the Arab League, of course, and the role of international organizations in Syria right now, because a lot of the discussion has focused on the actions of uh, individual actors and states. 
whereas we have previously seen like the humiliating failure of UN observer missions in Syria. And what other overtures can be made to opposition within the UN by Russia and China? And how best move forward the role of international organizations in bringing peace about in the region? Uh, so the role of international organizations going forward. Do you have a precondition, which is any faith in them? I, I think we've, we've heard from the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon a very uh, decent and fair discourse, but he cannot say more than that. Uh, he has been, uh, I think, uh, honest in his uh, assessment, and the way he chooses his words is, uh, is quite <coughs> remarkable. He has said it is for the regime to declare a unilateral ceasefire, why? Because a previous attempt uh, under the Annan plan was to get a ceasefire between the parties. And this uh, formulation of the issue in terms of between the parties very early on in the, suggested that there were two equal partner parties fighting each other on the ground. I think that Ban Ki-moon is doing his best to portray the situation in fair terms. Now, uh, it is definitely, we, what we don't see is a consistent and clear policy by um, the, the countries that have supported the Syrian uprising, who have imposed sanctions on the regime, who are condemning it uh, verbally. Uh, it is just a lack of, of clarity in whether the option of military or the option of diplomacy is taken. In fact, there is no choice that is made. And month after month, we find the situation that is worse, and the choices are worse. And there is no good choice today. There are only bad options, probably, or risky options. But to say, uh, to perhaps to... Uh, react to one of the points that Nicholas was making, if there was a strategy of uh, bringing serious management of the situation on the ground, we have opposition from Russia and China. What is it that would change that position? I think that uh, many partner parties, whether they are outside or inside Syria, uh, and Russia and China are among those, uh, do not uh, look at the situation in terms of uh, in, in moral terms or that this is human rights violations and is morally unacceptable and they simply look at what uh, they are realists or cynics and, and they look at uh, the actual balance of forces on the ground is he likely to survive is he likely to prevail and if so, we will continue to support him. Now, what diplomats from the Syrian uh, defecting diplomats or retired diplomats have been telling us is you can only change Russia's position if you alter the balance of forces on the ground. Then Russia will understand that there is a chance that the uprising and the opposition can prevail 
and is likely to change its position. So the answer is arm the Free Syrian Army and then go and talk to Russia, China, and those who hold the keys to a solution, maybe uh, Iran as well. So it is not all all out war, but it is one uh, option that could be taken. It is not an either or. And so, I, and so do you agree in a sense with what Nicholas was saying, which is that realistically, at least in the short term, there is no feasible possibility of bringing down the regime militarily, but rather in, in sending no, diplomatic... No, I disagree. I think I, think I disagree. How do you do that? In fact, I do disagree fundamentally here. I think uh, just like sanctions will not suffocate the regime only through financial, it is not only financial suffocation that sanctions bring, but they bring um, tension and conflict inside the power structure. It's the same with military pressure. Military pressure brings with the losses of uh, soldiers, of the loyal uh, forces of the regime, it is now facing uh, a lot of uh, pressure uh, from the army, from units that it cannot deploy for certain missions, from its own Alawite community, which is saying, why are our children dying every day? Bodies are brought back to be buried every day to the Alawite neighborhoods, they live in fear, yes. They live in fear of retribution, but they also are blaming the regime. So it is how you bring tension and conflict to the power structure. This is what is likely to bring it down if we don't have a negotiated uh, settlement. And again, uh, was there a prospect? Of course there was a prospect. For month and month and month, Opposition, moderate, considered moderate opposition, those who were willing to talk to the regime, were a much larger number. They were a majority. They were actually a a large majority were saying there may be a way of negotiating something with the regime. And uh, that never happened. The regime was never serious about any negotiation. It was using and manipulating any opposition uh, figure to the point that today the regime would not find any credible opposition figure to to talk to because they never wanted to recognize that these were uh, true representative of the opposition even though there was much space back then for uh, a negotiated uh, settlement. So uh, we've had bad and difficult and risky choices to make inside, outside, But then, if you don't make any decision, the choice the following month is just worse. And the drift is this. You let it drift, it is a nightmare. What will come at the end is maybe a country that is not, uh, that cannot be kept united. All sorts of risks today face Syria. Will a government be able to prevent any of that? My, My answer is I don't, I doubt. And I think we will need a lot of outside support. We will need the UN and the Arab League. The UN has not managed the crisis as uh, it unfolds. Uh, It will have to manage it afterwards, and it will probably be even more difficult. But if it doesn't deploy the real means that are needed on the ground, uh, we will have really uh, left a big failure for the international community in terms of crisis management. Thank 
you. Okay, we'll take a question from the middle of is the... Is Yara room. still... Is she still Yara? She's still theoretically there. Alu? Alu? still there theoretically. Um, let's take a question. Yes, yes. Yes, I'm here. Sorry about the voice is not clear at all. That's fantastic. Um, this gentleman in the black shirt. Thank you. Uh, Yara, I've got a question for you. You mentioned the role of foreign jihadis uh, in Syria, especially in the north. You said that they weren't that strong, weren't well organized and well funded. Um, I would like to make a comparison with Mali. There was also a rebellion going on, and the foreign jihadis took over power in the north of the country. Is such a scenario likely to happen, that foreign jihadis will take over power at least in a small part of Syria after a possible collapse of the regime? Yara, did you hear the question? No, would you would you please repeat it because I couldn't hear it. Um, okay, it was on. Uh, maybe I have, Maybe you can do it. Yeah, it was on the jihadist uh, imprint in the north of the country. He's uh, asking whether there's any comparison with what's going on in Mali, where vast swathes of territory have been taken in the, in the north. Do you think that that would be at all possible in the future? Is the question. I'm so sorry again because it's <laughs> because it's not clear at all. Oh, Would you please um, come again, or maybe write it down, type um, it on type the it. Skype? Um, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry for this, guys. No, Yara, that's absolutely fine. Um, I think maybe we'll move on because of the time. I'm really sorry, Yara, Yara to exclude you. Um, That's may, true. I, may I suggest uh, that uh, because Yara cannot hear, uh, but also because we have somebody who is knowledgeable on this issue, and my colleague Salam Kawakibi, uh, who is the Deputy Director of the Arab Reform Initiative, but is uh, also a Syrian and a, uh, probably the most knowledgeable among us all, to answer the issue of specifically on the jihadi uh, subject. Thank you. First, uh, the comparison, it's... Uh, it's not, uh, in this case, it's very far from the reality. We have jihadists in Syria, and I ask all the observers and those who follow the Syrian issue to make a distinction between jihadists, Salafists, Islamists, because we, it's the same trap what uh, happening in the 19 when we confused between all the Islamist movement in the Arab world and we put them in the same uh, basket. The jihadists are not, the Salafists are not jihadists, but the jihadists are Salafists. We have in Syria all the uh, traditional tradition in Islam on Sufi. It's very far from the Salafi. The Salafi, it's uh, a new phenomena in Syria. And uh, we have three, at least, school of Salafi in Syria. The Salaf scientific Salafi and jihadist Salafi and uh, activist, activist Salafi. The jihadist Salafi now in Syria, uh, composed by, uh, at, in the most important number, 3,000 people. And those, you must remember, in the, in the half of, uh, in the middle of the revolution, the regime relays thousands of thousands of jihadists from Sednaya prison when they was used by the regime himself to, be, to make operation in Iraq and they was arrested in Syria, and they released them in the middle of the uprising. Uh, the jihadists now in Syria are a uh, uh, dangerous phenomena, but it's mi min minimized phenomena. We, we don't need 
to exaggerate it and to compare that to Ma Mali. Uh, the, the problem is when uh, we continue to talking about jihadists, we must understand what uh, Syria, it's open border, open space, and even Marchand that can come and can organize themselves in units. For the moment, jihadists are a few, uh, very few uh, people and they are not very influent. And I receive calls from journalists, Western journalists from Aleppo and North Syria, ask me, we need jihadists. I told them, try to found. They said, if we come back to Paris without a, a reportage on jihadists, we will be fired by our uh, editorial. It's a shame for them and for the, the, the professional. It's not mean no jihadists in Syria. We have jihadists in Syria, and it's uh, the responsibility of all the international community now to protect the future of Syria from a very small phenomena in the moment who can be important phenomena in the future. Thank you. Uh, my name is Omar Al Imadi, Omar Imadi. I am a Syrian American. I was coming here actually ho in hope of uh, seeing Yaro, who I haven't seen in uh, many years. Um, I, to Nicholas, and I say this with lots of respect. Okay. The I'm ready. World War II, there were a <laughs> that lot usually of means something <laughs> bad is coming. <laughs> Perhaps. But, you know, at the eve of World War II, there were a lot of voices that wanted to appease Nazi Germany. Mm. On very similar um, logic, yes. you know, the idea that not appeasing Nazi Germany would uh, lead exactly. to uh, violence on a scale unimaginable. Exactly. And they were right, <clears throat> and it did so. But um, the question, I guess, that we ask in retrospect is, what would it be like had we not intervened? And you are right in diagnosing the evil of the regime, and you agree with that, and that yet you, because of your fear, which I do not disagree with, yeah. of this unimaginable violence, you advocate a strategic, pragmatic approach, which you see that is more in America's interest, perhaps. You can call it a policy of appeasement. I actually don't mind you using that word. Okay. That's what I am advocating <laughs> All right, for. fine. But, but the, the point is, is that, is it really, and I'm not quite sure what the right word here, but at what point right. does appeasement as a principle um, no longer... Uh, almost leave the framework right. of, of universal morality. There, you know, for example, Syria is really a very challenging place in, in, in as far as our imagination. It proved that violence and nonviolence has its limits. Right. I teach a few courses on nonviolence, and with nonviolence, there's always an assumption that your opponent can be embarrassed into behaving himself, so to speak. There, there's a point, there's something he won't do. If, if you keep standing in front of your oppressor, right. using nonviolent tactics, right. there's a point at which they will stop. It's too embarrassing. It's right. too, it's too, and, and Syria proved the contrary. There's no point at which, you know, people were shot for, for, for the mere demonstration and, and okay. nonviolence fell apart. And now we have other voices speaking of, of appeasement. And I think, you know, Besma um, Qudmani, I think she, she the most, uh, the strongest truth she shared with us today is that none of this was a choice. People didn't choose to, to use arms. 
they, uh, people didn't choose to not follow pragmatic approaches. People I didn't I think choose. Nick uh, accepts that. Yes. So I'm sorry. what is your response, well, Nick, to the No, this the is really important. But first, is, is that a protest in Lebanon? Is that Yara's Skype? Is that what we were hearing? Or is there, are there students protesting LSE fees or something like that? <laughs> what? Oh, okay, guys, this is not fair. I hear my name, but I can't really hear you clearly. So somebody have, has to have, have to explain to me. It's okay. Um, well, <laughs> let me just quickly uh, ask that, um, or answer that, excuse me. Um, the question of appeasement is very important. Um, Bashar Assad and his regime may be as evil as persons as Hitler and his regime, although that's uh, perhaps even a stretch, but... The point is, is that the balance of power is fundamentally different. And I would argue in situations like we have with Syria, where Syria actually is a very weak actor compared to its opponents on the other side, compared to its opponents which gathered slowly and steadily over the revolt period. As a weak actor, but one that has a, a repository of weapons that are very difficult to use, only in the Samson, the last option to bring the whole temple down on everyone or to provoke a sort of climactic confrontation. Even though they can spawn great violence, they're actually a fairly weak actor in the balance of power. And what I would argue is that when you have these kinds of situations, Unlike Nazi Germany, where you have a relative balance of power, or the Soviet Union and America with a relative balance of power, that this allows great powers, preponderant powers, like the United States, Turkey, the European Union, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and others, to actually negotiate and bargain away more cards more easily. Because actually what you're doing is steadily and obliquely undermining their ability and desire to use violence over time. Now that's a patient strategy, which is difficult for actors like the United States. It's also a politically different, uh, difficult uh, thing to do as well. It's also uh, very hard to hold together over a two to three to five to six a year window. I agree completely. There are fundamental problems, but it's possible, and I think it's reasonable when you look at it. So in other words, <clears throat> Bashar Assad is not Hitler. He can't do what Hitler was able to do. And because of that situation, it needs to open up our ability to offer more inducements, to bring him closer to us, so that ultimately, ultimately, we can, <clears throat> we can bring his regime down. That's, that, I think, would have been the much smarter approach. Excuse me. Okay, no problem. Have some water. Um, okay, so we'll, let's, take, let's take about three questions at the same time. Uh, there's one just here, one at the front, and then... Hello. Thank you for this lovely, interesting seminar. Uh, my question is more about the region and the <coughs> regional uh, responses to what's happening in Syria. I mean, there is one actor that is almost desperately trying to be a part of this conflict, and that is Turkey. I mean, they have... I mean, it has been one week since they have authorized military action against Syria. And then last week they, uh, they have brought down a Syrian commercial plane for uh, searching whether there were any military things in it. Mm -hmm. And I, I would really like to hear the American and Syrian views on this. On Turkey. Are we going to take several questions? Turkey, yes, we're, we're going to take a couple more now. Um, we have the gentleman there in the black T-shirt, and then we have one at the front, and then we'll have another round. Hello, thank you for coming tonight. Um, my question I wanted to ask was more about how a lot was spoken tonight about the fact that there has not been enough management of the Free Syrian Army in implementing governance and the ideals of democracy that they want to implement after 
the end of the revolution. So my question I would like to know is um, how, what is it going to take for uh, the Free Syrian Army and the proper management of the situation into, becoming, into implementing the democratic ideals that the Free Syrian Army stands for? What is it going to take um, to come up with that alternative to the governance of Bashar al-Assad that they wish for um, the legitimacy that they seek on the international um, political mm -hmm. realm. Thank you. Okay, thanks. And I uh, don't know where the other mic has gone, but um, there's one at the front here. Well, I think we have to think about something that's between appeasement and all-out regional war. We have to try to think of alternatives. And I just, I, I'm not going to propose alternatives, but I have two questions, one for Yara and one for Basma, about possible things that could be done. For Basma, I'd like to know what could be done from the outside, not just by governments, but by civil society groups, to strengthen the non-sectarian civil society groups inside Syria, and are they at all engaged in the Brahimi process? Do they have access to Brahimi? That's my first question. I hope you can hear it, Yara. And my second question is to Basma. You mentioned the meeting going on in Paris about local councils. Is the idea of trying to strengthen local councils uh, in the, uh, I don't know, quotes, free areas a good idea? And could one think about a negotiating strategy which would focus on local ceasefires in order to give access to UN agencies and humanitarian agencies? Mm -hmm. <coughs> okay. Basma, do you want to take that one first? Okay, a quick comment on, on Turkey. I think uh, while Turkey in the beginning was really at the forefront uh, and uh, thought it was possible for uh, its own cap capabilities, with its own capabilities to manage the Syrian crisis and be involved in it, I think it then, seeing that it took these proportions and the regional involvement, uh, understood that this was not about uh, intervening or managing a crisis in a smaller neighboring country. It's a much bigger issue. And today I think Turkey is frustrated and angry because it is not finding the right response from mainly its allies. Uh, in terms of managing the refugee issue, there's a possibility that uh, a no-fly zone can be imposed without having to go to a full war. There isn't time to discuss that, but there is an, a very obvious and easy scenario in which Turkey would find that it has a protected zone where refugees can, take, can go, where they can, we can have humanitarian aid, and we would ease the pressure on Turkey, which is huge at the moment. So the non-management of the Syrian situation is impacting Turkey before anyone else. On the Free Syrian Army, um, to have a Free Syrian Army organized, it is currently coming uh, under increasing, uh, there are increasing efforts to bring the groups together. Now, why is it important 
to uh, organize these groups and why it cannot happen uh, without the political authority. Uh, it is important to bring these uh, financial, so the financial support and the weapons, of course, uh, under one channel through one, uh, one player only, Uh, because that will bring the groups together. But what it will do more importantly is it will say, this is the Free Syrian Army. It has to abide by a set of principles. It has to abide by a political line that a political authority is defining strategically. It can have decision-making power at the tactical level. It's its business, of course. These are military decisions. But at the strategic level, it's not for the Free Syrian Army to decide. And the final, uh, the, the ultimate organization of the Free Syrian Army will only come about with a political authority that sets the terms of this relationship. And this is why I say it's a consistent, coherent, clear relationship that needs to be developed, which still doesn't exist. On uh, Mary Caldor's question, uh, civil society organizations, uh, I think there are many initiatives on the ground, inside and outside, involving all communities in humanitarian work, in building uh, safety networks. There isn't enough time, but again, I would have asked my colleague Salam to say a word about uh, an initiative that is working on the ground and is producing, I'll speak uh, on his behalf because I know the story. This is a network of, of representatives of all communities and all political groups which have developed a network of connecting among themselves on the ground to diffuse any uh, tension that emerges or any uh, risk of, a retrib of retribution or any hostage-taking issues that can be resolved immediately on the ground among peoples before they escalate into something bigger. Access to Brahimi, I think it's too early to say that this is the case. Uh, there As I said, I think there needs to be some creative thinking about what can be done, how civil society can play a role, can we have those pockets of safe uh, areas, but you need to challenge the regime. There is a risk in every decision, and the problem is whenever there is 5% risk, there's no decision, and this is what we're finding. So if Mr. Brahimi can, have the, can we be persuasive enough to say, look, I cannot be the fig leaf for all of you countries not wanting to take any risk in this situation. It has become a dangerous situation. There are only risky decisions. You have to take some risks. And then we would have the kind of, of suggestion, suggestions that you're, uh, you're making. Uh, local councils, do we have time? Well, not much. <laughs> yes, yeah. good, no, it yes. It meant to be the other way around, actually. Yeah. And the civil society. No, the civil society question was too young. Was too young. Okay. Let's say if I if I understand the question um, correctly, I think Mary is asking, right? Yes. Yes. Hi, Mary. Uh, the question is, how can the international community support the civil society inside Syria, right? Yeah. yeah that's it, that's it. Yes, I think. Um, Supporting civil society institution or organization or small groups is a necessity uh, by uh, uh, training, of course, by giving the civil society activists a wider exposure on the international, uh, toward the national, international experiences in this regard. And also, um, media coverage show that 
they, they are not being heard in, in the media because, you know, in, in the media there's only a room for political figures or for uh, the FSA, the, the armed, uh, the armed uh, leaders, but not for social activists, not at all. You rarely can see so, uh, social activists in the media. Their voice is not heard. So I think the media can, can, can play a great role and also the training and also the, you know, building bridges between social activists in the region and, and as well as the international ones, Europe, European ones, and, and so on. This is what the international community can do. Okay. Can I just say something on the Turkey question or no? I'm sure, sure. I don't think we'll have time for any more questions. So okay. Uh, and also, I, I would like to add something about the jihadi question, if possible. Um, I already said that the jihadi threat is overrated. Um, but unfortunately, the people in the gray groups in Syria are, 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 scared, are scared about from these, from these groups. They are, um, uh, they are drawn back to the regime, unfortunately, in places like Aleppo because they are afraid of the jihadis and the, the chaos. And, and that's why their existence is a, is, is a threat. Um, we, we noted that some few incidents were, were, uh, took place in the north of Syria, like uh, committing crimes and, and executions in, in, in the north, but I think there are still uh, very few, but, but the, the the threat, the danger is that the people in the gray groups are now afraid and they don't want this, they don't want to support this, the revolution anymore. This is the problem. Um, and that's it. I, I hope that I answered your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Yara. So um, I don't think we have time for any more questions. We do have to leave the room. Nick, do you have a last? Um, sure, I don't know if it's fair or not to have the last thing. But uh, just on the Turkish question, just related to also what we were speaking about in terms of Russian foreign mm -hmm. policy in the UN. I would argue that, that the Turkish leadership has been extremely irresponsible over the last 19, 20 months of this conflict. Um, they raised the expectations of the Syrian opposition and of various other actors to extraordinarily high levels that they ultimately were not and are not willing to actually back up. That's the first thing. The second thing is that it's not just a Turkish calculation of Bashar likely to survive or not, or even their moral calculation. Just as with the Russians, it's not simply about the likeliness of Bashar falling or not. In other words, if, they get, if the rebels get 100 Stinger missiles and it seems as if Bashar can be brought down, I still don't think that's going to change the Russian position because both Turkey and Russia, indeed all of the actors, also are making a calculation on another side which is the contingent possibility of this regime and quite possibly its very strong allies in the region being able to bring about tremendous destruction. And one of the ironies of the last two weeks for me, listening to Hassan Nasrallah speak, the head of Hezbollah, has actually been that we've seen over the last six to eight months a discernible fear in Nasrallah's speech, in his discourse. And it's not just for the reason that many of his opponents say, which is that Hezbollah's backs are against the wall and they're in a disastrous position and no one likes them anymore in the region. Indeed, all of the actors in the Middle East are facing serious problems, including worse than the ones that Hezbollah is facing. Some of its worst enemies are facing problems such that Hezbollah is facing. But what he's communicated is that 
I think both directly and to a greater degree indirectly, is that they are losing the ability to control the situation going forward. And that that creates a tremendous danger. And for Hezbollah, which ultimately in some ways hates chaos almost as much as it hates Zionism, for example, this is a disaster. This is a disaster. And he said the other day when he was explaining away <clears throat> Hezbollah's support of the regime, he made an admission which actually, if we take him at his word, is actually worse for Hezbollah, which is that we have members fighting in Syria. We can't control them in these matters. They're fighting because it's their villages, etc., etc. For Hezbollah to say that after 30 years of rigid discipline is an incredible admission and an incredibly dangerous admission for everyone. Uh, so I would just close by that. Maybe you want to ask the last word. Yeah. Do you have a last sentence that you want us to take away? <laughs> no, I think I, I just uh, would say we, the, the blame game continues because there's a lack of, uh, of policy. We should have, the opposition should have, the Syrians should have, and they, should ha sh they shouldn't have done this or that. Uh, I think what comes out from Nick's, Nicholas' uh, remarks is, and I think your comment as well, uh, Dr. Ahmadi, is this is a very, very difficult and uh, destructive uh, situation, and we just have to deal with it. And uh, underestimating or thinking that local councils, which are vital actually, because for the moment that's how people can survive, are they a substitute? to a policy? Do they bring any answer to the big questions? No. The answer is no. So there's a lot of agitation around small solutions or small relief that is not bringing any answer to the big questions. And those big issues beg to find answers. Are they political? Yes. There could have been a big bargain with Russia, maybe, which is beyond what the Syrians can offer to Russia. <coughs> That's also one that was never made. So. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, it's a shame to end here because we're just getting started, it feels like. Um, the Skype thing, thank you very much for your patience. I saw Homeland on Sunday night. Did anyone see that? Where the CIA were Skyping each other for a mission. I thought if they can do it, <laughs> we can do it. It's the movies. Um, <laughs> Not Beirut Internet. <laughs> um, but anyway, thank you so much for coming out this evening. And please join me in thanking our wonderful panel.